Well, hello, everyone. A special welcome to you today. My name is Ben. If you're our guest, a double welcome to you. We're so glad that you're here. And Pastor Will, just a moment ago, asked you that if you're our guest, to make sure you fill out the Connect card. Now, regular folks who attend this church, um, they fill it out every week. They put their name, their email on it, because they know that at the end of the message, I'm going to give you a chance to take some steps in the direction of what we've been talking about. We think that you should come to church, not to just experience the music or hear some inspiring things, we think that you should take what you hear and then leave with an action plan. And so we want to take a first step together, and you'll be able to use your card to do that. But if you're our guest, if you'll give us your address as well, this week we'll send you a token of our appreciation for you being with us. We're going to send you a coupon for some free Chick-fil-A. We're not going to hound you. Nobody's going to show up at your house. We're going to send you a couple of uh, of Coupons for Chick-fil-A, we'll send you an email and give you a chance to tell us about your experience. It's all about us here trying to make sure we can do the best job we can to make everybody feel welcomed. Well, I want to direct your attention beyond the Connect card to your program looks like this. There's some stuff on the front, but on the inside, if again, if you're a regular attender, this looks a little different today. Usually, the inside is completely full of all of my notes. Today, you get a skeleton of my notes because the other half of the inside of your program today talks about what is one of the most exciting things we do every year around here. Every year, this church gets very generous, and we make a big difference with our generosity. And over the last few years, we've been building an orphanage in Kerala, India. I was there this year with Pastor Will and a couple of other folks, and we visited the work that we have been investing in for a long time. And this year, we're going to do it again. We're going to give to India, and there are other things in here that you can see. I'll talk about them just briefly. And then starting next week, I've got pictures and stories to show you what has happened and what your generosity is going to do this year. So if you're a regular attender around here, you know the drill. I ask you to set aside a sum of money and give it to the Lord's work here, near, and around the world. And so one of the most exciting things we're doing is we're moving into Cuba. And there's a church in Cuba about an hour and a half, two hours outside of Havana. And they have some property and a little building and a a good gathering of people. The average church in Cuba is under 30 people. This church has well over 100 people. But what they don't have is a lot of resources. And the American dollar goes very, very far. And so we're going to help them develop their campus. And we're going to have a second orphanage. And we're going to make a deep investment in that this year. And so that's what that's about. And I wanted you, in case you get bored with what I'm saying today, to have that in front of you. You can read it, all right? Um, Don't get too bored. All right, so welcome again. This is the second week of a message series we started last week called Turning Points. And it's very simple what we're doing here. We're looking at what changed because Jesus came. What happened when Jesus walked this earth that changed things? What changed? So last week I talked with you very briefly about what happened when Jesus made it clear that the path to greatness was through serving. The path to greatness was through serving. It wasn't through the clamoring of authority or titles. Really, it was when Jesus grabbed a towel and he showed that even though he had all the privilege and prestige and title, he showed that he didn't consider himself too great, that he couldn't bend down and wash the feet of the people he loved. And then we asked a question. We said, what if, what if this week we went out of here, we said this last Sunday, what if we went out and we started saying to the people around us, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? Well, today, I want to take you to another moment in the life of Jesus where I think when he did it, everything changed. 
And I think for those of us that are following Jesus in the room, and I know not everybody is, but if you are, I think that if you'll follow Jesus in this example and in the heart of what he was doing, I think it will change your life as well. I think that once you accept Jesus as your savior, you give your life to him, not through anything you've done to earn it, but because he gave his life on a cross and was resurrected from the tomb and he offers us new life because he's gracious. I think when you accept that, he doesn't just secure you for heaven. No, 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 no. He does so much more than that. He secures for you a path here on this earth that brings an awful lot of heaven to you. And today, we're going to discover how some of that happens. But i got to take you just a little bit on a, on a history lesson for just a few moments. I want to take you through a few experiences in the life of Jesus before we come to the particular one that I want to talk with you about. And it does have a lot to do with really the mission and the core of this church and the heart behind why we would do something called a heart and hands Christmas offering anyway. So let me just make a statement and then we'll unpack it. I think that Jesus Christ, I think that Jesus Christ did more for women and children than any human being that has ever lived or died. I think that Jesus did more to give value, worth, dignity, and elevate the status of women and children than anybody else that's ever lived, present or past. And I think that the difference Jesus has made when you watch how he interacted with women and children particularly sets for every follower of Jesus after him a standard to which we should aspire. It shows us God's heart for people and it causes us to ask a simple question. What's my heart for people? Especially people that historically have not been afforded dignity, worth, value. Those that are on the other side of the tracks. Those that don't have the pedigree or the opportunity or the income. I think Jesus Christ has done more to elevate the status of women and children than anybody else who's ever lived past or present. History is replete with example of men throughout history and sometimes women who've preyed upon the weaker ones in their group. This was certainly true through the pages of our Old Testament, those ancient Israelite scriptures, where there were dramatic displays of power gone awry, head tripping, power playing. And there were often a group of people, sometimes it was the people who the Bible story is primarily about, the people of Israel through whom Jesus comes. And other times it was about the people around them. And they demonstrated a hunger and a thirst for power and prestige, and they often used it to inflict pain and to subjugate other people. And you don't have to go very far in human history. You don't have to go very far back in your calendar to see that this stuff happened. But regularly in the life of Jesus, he demonstrated that while some people are undesirable and don't deserve to be a part of the group, he demonstrated that he would consider them valuable. He would invite to them clearly an invitation to join him, that they would be afforded dignity as he talked to them. Jesus, by these actions, set the standard that all of his followers should be modeling since he taught us that if we loved him, we would do what he does and keep his commandments. I think at one particular moment, before we get to our primary passage, 
in the life of Jesus. And many of you who've been studying the Bible, you know this story. Some of you don't. It's a really wonderful story contained in our Bible in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, it's the story where Jesus visits the house of his friend Lazarus. Now, Lazarus is the person that Jesus raises from the dead, one of those folks in the Bible where that story is. But there was a deeper relationship than just that event. And so Jesus is visiting the house of Lazarus, and in the house, there's two women, Mary and Martha. And Jesus is a big-time guest, and they're going to have a lot of people over, and Jesus is known for his profound teaching, and he has kind of rabbi status, and so they want him to teach. And in preparation of getting ready for Jesus' visit, Martha is very, very busy. But when Jesus starts talking, Mary sits down at his feet and listens. And usually, when a pastor tells this story, we usually make a point like this, and it's a valid point. It's just not the point I'm making today. We usually say something like this. We have to be very careful to not get caught up in the stuff of life, like getting a house ready for guests, that we miss the whole reason Jesus was there anyway, which was to teach and have people's lives changed by his presence and by his teaching. So be like Mary, don't be like Martha. That's a valid point. I, I need to do that sometimes. I get caught up in stuff. Like I'm a, I'm a little bit of a driven guy, you know, and I'll get caught up in stuff. And sometimes I have to remember Have a merry heart, have a merry heart, M-A-R-Y, and it will lead to a merry heart, M-E-R-R-Y. I have to remember that sometimes. But here's what I want you to reflect on. You may not know this, but in Jesus' culture, as is true in a lot of places around the world today, a woman would never have been allowed to sit at the feet of Jesus like Mary was doing and be a part of the conversation he was having. That position was reserved for the people who had clout, who had power, who had esteem. And in that culture, when Mary was permitted to sit at Jesus' feet, it was a big deal. It was scandalous. But even more so, Jesus, in hearing Martha kind of grumbling, complain that she's doing all the work and Mary gets to sit down and listen, Jesus looks at Mary and says, You've done a really good thing here, Mary. And what you're doing, that's not going to be taken from you. What you're receiving from this exchange of sitting at my feet and listening and being a a part of this important spiritual conversation, that's not going to be taken from you. And he affirmed her choice and he affirmed her place. And he said that she, like all the other people in the room, had available to her the words of life coming out of his mouth. And he affirmed her. Uh, There's another little snippet of Jesus' life where he encounters a woman. Some of you have heard this story. We call it the woman at the well. A woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. And in that culture, that was punishable by stoning. But the whole point wasn't to maintain any laws. There were people trying to trick Jesus. So they cart this woman over to Jesus in an attempt to trap him and hinder his popularity. There's no man present, just as guilty. But in that country, at that time in the world, like in many parts of the world today, women had no status. So Jesus looks at her and gives the famous phrase, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And of course, nobody is sinless. And so he dispenses the tension as he dispenses the crowd. But beyond that powerful statement he made and its implications was the gentle handling of a woman 
counterculturally. A gentle inviting of her to experience life with him. Jesus changed forever the status and the role of women and children in a world that often preys upon these people. It's that reality that often the weakest, the least of these are preyed upon that has caused Christians throughout history for the last 2,000 years in the spirit of Jesus to lean in and declare that every human life has dignity. Every single one of them. Now, it's counterintuitive to talk like that because we're all born with a certain sense of where do we belong? How do we rank? How am I superior? How are you superior? And in this internal selfishness and self-orientation, what often happens in a culture is there are the haves and the have-nots, the strong and the weak. And those get in, sometimes in, encoded into our laws and our practices. But the Christian church when it was modeling the heart and the mind of Jesus, said that some structures may be fine, but when it comes to value, worth, dignity, an invitation at the Lord's table, an invitation at the church, everybody comes, the ground is level at the cross. It's a really big deal. When Jesus interacted with children, my favorite story of Jesus and children, he was teaching, and people loved to hear him teach. He taught as one who had authority, it is said. It was more than just information he shared. The words dripped with life. People clung to every word. They wrote it down. They remembered it. They recorded it. It was that important. And one day, while Jesus was doing this big thing, teaching the multitudes, some parents started saying, bringing their children and saying to Jesus, would you lay your hands on them? Would you bless them? Now, that wasn't all that unusual because children, you know, in that day and age, there wasn't a lot of medical care. There wasn't a lot of understanding of hygiene. The, 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 the infant mortality rate was incredibly high. The pregnancy mortality rate, very high. As many as 40% of women who gave birth to children in that day would die because of complications. This is the nature of the way it was. So to have a young child, you wanted whatever you could do to make that child's life better, right? But not because of what you and I think about children, that they're kind of cute and cuddly and awesome and full of life. No, <laughs> legally speaking, and in the minds of many people, you had slaves and you had kids and you had women and you had everybody else. And in that moment, when the parents were bringing their kids to Jesus and he's teaching and would you touch him, you know, bring some safety, bring some good fortune. The Bible says something profound. Now, the part that we normally preach here is, and so he looks to his disciples and he says, unless you can come as a child, you can't be a part of me. And that's a valid preaching point because that's what Jesus said, but that's not my point today. The parents asked Jesus to touch the kids. But the Bible says that Jesus picked up the kids, pulled them into his arms and set them on his lap. They asked for a touch, and he gave a hug. They wanted a, a brief encounter, but he embraced children all the way. Jesus has elevated the status of the less fortunate, of the lower class. And in that culture, in that day, it was slaves 
In Rome at the time of the New Testament, 40% of the population were slaves. It was slaves. That's why in a few weeks when we start doing Christmas carols, one of the Christmas carols we'll sing has the line, for the slave is my brother. And that was the attitude that the coming of Jesus made possible. There were slaves, there were kids, there were women, and Jesus turns it on, on its head. And he's countercultural and he's counterintuitive. When Jesus spoke about divorce a few weeks ago, we talked about it from Matthew chapter 5. What is Jesus' heart on divorce? And when he talked about divorce, all the stuff we said is important. But beyond that, there's another story going on. In that day, women had no legal status. And in giving the teaching on divorce, Jesus was basically saying this. Women are not disposable. You cannot use them and discard them. You can't do that. The creator created the male and female both in his image. Women are not disposable, men, is what Jesus was saying to the crowd. And his words still have work to do in our culture. You can go to places on our globe right now where both by law and sometimes by practice, women are disposable. And Jesus said, no, not for me and mine. This is not the way we do it. We don't leverage power to keep people down. We don't use our wealth to accumulate more. We use our power to bless others. We use our wealth to give lift. One of the reasons why, when I think about why I'm a Christian, there's like five big things that come out of me. I'll share a couple of them with you. I believe it's true. <laughs> That's enough for me. Some people don't. I struggle with doubt sometimes, but fundamentally, I believe there was a guy named Jesus who literally died and was resurrected from a tomb, and he's alive today. And that, I, now I, I believe it all, but if that was it, I'm there. I'm good. But the other reasons that I love what Jesus did and what he did in, 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 throughout human history as God got the world ready to receive this incredible message Jesus would give, and a lot of that story is recorded in our Old Testament, one of the reasons I love what Jesus did is I've seen the power of Jesus' people at work in my own life, around the globe, through, throughout history. You know who started hospitals? Christians. You know who started colleges? Christians. Do you know who made public education the priority in the United States? Christians. Christians have always given lift to people. Always. And we are at our best when we follow the Savior, the Redeemer of life, the one who words contain life. We're at our best when we follow him in giving lift. But it's counterintuitive and it's countercultural. And left to our own, we'll devolve. We'll retreat back to structures and status making. And I'm better than you. You're not better than me. Alvin Schmidt wrote a book called How Christianity Changed the World. It's impacted my thinking. I offer it to you. You can buy it on Amazon while you're sitting right here. But he talks about this very thing that we're chatting about today. In one, one line, he says that Peter instructs husbands to be considerate and to treat their wives with respect as co-heirs 
of the gracious gift that God has offered. Peter, a disciple of Jesus, who watched Jesus do all this stuff. Peter encourages us in his writing in the New Testament to treat women as, here's the key word, co-heirs. That's a big deal. Because in that day, women were not allowed to be heirs to anything. But we are encouraged to treat women as co-heirs to the good work that God would do through Jesus in this world. That they would, as Paul would say later, that there is no dividing line, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, all come to the cross equally because the ground is level there. And man, when I think about how ugly church history can be sometimes, and there's some moments where I'm just embarrassed to say, yeah, I'm kind of connected to that. There's some moments around the world today where I'm kind of embarrassed to go, I'm, I'm connected to that. That's my brother, but he's kind of like the weird brother, you know, the, that's the weird cousin that nobody wants to talk about, you know. I have some of those. You know, they're my family. They're probably going to go to heaven. God's going to do a lot of correction when they get there, but they're probably going to make it in. They're the weird uncle that nobody wants to talk about. But there's so much that God has done. And it stands as a testimony that if we'll follow our Savior, we can do powerful work in his name. We can literally change lives. It was D.L. Moody who was doing ministry in Chicago, and he started paying attention to the kids. And they were hooligans. They couldn't go to school. They couldn't keep up with their grades. They were cast out on the street. They were playing, you know, uh, games on the street. And when they got bored, they messed with the people and theft was rampant. And it was just an ugly, ugly mess. So he came up with an idea to start a school. But he didn't want it to be like a normal school. He called it Sunday school. And he started bringing these youth in off the street and giving them the ability to engage God's word. Taught them to read, gave them relationships of value so that they would see the difference that could be made, created a place where they could come that was clean and he fed them, treated them with dignity, they were invited in, and Sunday school was begun because a man had a passion to see the lives of children changed. All through human history, Christians have risen to the challenge. And I don't think there's a more poignant place in the Bible to discuss this than in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 in your Bibles, on your message notes. I have the, the bottom pass, uh, part of the passage we're going to read recorded for you there. But in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has just been talking with his disciples. And I think your passage picks up somewhere around verse 46 in your notes. I'm going to back up to 44. And Jesus is telling his disciples, look, I'm about to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. And the disciples are, yeah, 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 that's good. But we got some stuff we want you to do for us before we get there. And so look at the passage. You'll pick up with me in your notes about halfway through. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Jesus is talking. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand, that is, the disciples did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. You ever been there? Like somebody says something, you don't get it, but you're just not going to ask? Yeah, that's normal. The disciples, that is the fathers of our faith, they did that stuff. They had questions, and they were like, you know, I don't want to act like I don't know what he means. So 
So I'm just not going to ask the question. But what's funny about that is the very next thing that they do, in a worse way, demonstrates they don't know what he meant. It's like the kid who's doing the prep for the test in class, and the teacher's reviewing, and he don't get it, but he doesn't go, I need some help. No, no, he's like, I don't want, I don't want it. And then the test comes the next day, and they're not ready. And then the teacher goes to the kid and says, why wouldn't you have, you know, we, you were here yesterday. Why well, didn't? So here's what the disciples do when Jesus says, look, I'm ready to go to the cross. This is the whole reason I'm here. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be greatest. Then Jesus, knowing their thoughts, three different times, by the way, he predicted his death. Three different times they demonstrated they had no idea what he was really here for. And each time he corrects them with an object lesson. We talked about one last week. Here's another one. An argument started. He took a little child and he had the child stand beside him. Again, imagine the geography. This great rabbi and here's a kid welcomed to be right here. That's just a, a beautiful image of Jesus' heart for the world and for the broken and for the downcast. And he pulls the child and he invites him to stand beside him. Then he said, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. And in that moment, Jesus turns it. He turns everything around. Everybody knows what it takes to be the greatest. Everybody knows what it takes. Except Jesus said what we know isn't right. He said, what we think makes somebody great isn't what makes somebody great. So as a proof of that, as a visual example of that, here's a kid. This kid is great. What, what, what makes a kid great? Now, if you're my kid, I can tell you what makes you great. You do what I tell you to do. Otherwise, you're not so great. You're a pain. <laughs> right? No, there's a certain practicality to that, but that wasn't what Jesus was talking about. This kid is great because he obeys. No, 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 no. Should he obey? Of course. Children should obey their parents. It is right. It, the first commandment with promise that you'll have a long and prosperous life. That's what the Bible says. So of course they should obey. But that's not the greatness. This child is great because he's made in the image of his creator. You've never locked eyes with a human being anywhere. That wasn't made in the image of his creator, and that is enough. Because they have life, they deserve dignity. I don't do politics from this stage, but one of the reasons I'm proud to be an American, I am. One of the reasons is, in our founding documents, all people are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Just a statement of what Jesus... That is Jesus. That's the echo of his voice in that document. I don't know about everything that America does, if it's all the echo of Jesus. But in that moment, we got it right. That child's great because he's made in the image of his creator. and Because he's made in the image of his creator, there are certain things given him by his creator that make him have dignity and worth. And we step into greatness with them when we acknowledge their dignity and worth. When we see in them their intrinsic value. Let's start filling in some blanks and doing the so what's here. We give you pens and notes so that you can take them home and think about them, all right? Number one, it is uniquely Christian. 
It is a uniquely Christian belief to see in each person, that is a man, a woman, and a child, intrinsic and inherent value. I'm not saying other people haven't talked about it, but it is uniquely a Christian contribution to the modern world we live in. And Jesus himself modeled it. This is why, although it's been highly politicized, and I'm certain I'll get emails, this is why most Christians throughout history said that the practice of abortion is abhorrent. Because they weren't concerned about the economics of the discussion, nor the convenience of the discussion. They were focused on a different principle. That that life is inherently valuable, it should not be discarded. It's because of what we're talking about here. In their world, that wasn't true. The Romans and the Greeks, particularly the Spartans, you know, if there was a problem, we're going to leave that baby laying by the rocks. You know, and if they make it, good for them. But they're not worth our investment. In the Old Testament, there were sacrifices to gods and you would bring your babies. And the writers of the New Testament are like, this is not the heart of God for people. Number two, love and honor all people. If you want to be like your heavenly father, there are a lot of things that Christians talk about that Christians should do. You go to any particular church, you come to ours, we're going to eventually give you a list of what you should and shouldn't do. It's just the nature of things. In fact, tonight we're going to have a class on membership and we're going to talk about our history and what we believe. And it's a wonderful time. It starts at four o'clock. It's such a weighty matter. We go about three and a half hours. We include a meal and we talk about all the reasons why we have a church called Four Corners. And we give you a chance to decide whether or not you want to be a part of it with us. We, we do all that. And in there, there's a little discussion about what makes us unique. There's some boundaries in there. Let the list change. You go to different groups, they have different lists. Jesus made it clear that there are a handful of things we can do, say, and believe that give us a unique stamp called Christian. And when we don't do those things, we're either not Christian or we're bad Christians. And a lot of us, by the way, have been scarred by people who were bad Christians. Sometimes you call them hypocrites. Sometimes you say they're not a Christian. A lot of times they're just bad Christians. And I like to make that distinction because I have to remember that sometimes I'm a bad Christian. I'm gonna go to heaven, but the Lord's gonna have to do some work on me when I get there, right? But one thing that is clear that's undeniable from Jesus that should be on everybody's list is the love we have one for another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's a defining characteristic. It's built upon the premise that I love you because you, like me, have value, dignity, and worth. You were worth the time and the investment of our heavenly father to send his one and only son. That is not a unique gift to me. John made it clear, for God so loved the world that he gave. He loved what? The world. That includes you, but not only you. That statement obligates me and you to one another. We love people, so we share them the gospel. We tell them the truth because we love them. Love is the defining characteristic. It certainly includes a, the list of what Christians should do and believe and say. It includes a certain amount of doctrine, of course. Of course it does. In, in our church, we elevate the role of doctrine. But doctrine without love 
creates the kind of Christianity that has ruined many of you and your families to church. Doctrine without love, we call it right here, we say we have got a slogan for that. Mean Christians. Mean Christians. Some of you were out of church for years before you came here because of mean Christians. Somebody said something to your mom and it hurt deeply and you never forgot it. And if that's the way Christians are, you want nothing to do with it. We started this church with that in mind. That we would try to love. We'd take up for those that are being picked on. We'd say to everybody, no perfect people are allowed here. Hoping that they would hear in that, that if you don't have it all together, you're welcomed here. We enshrined it in a slogan, real love now. Because we know that while doctrine is essential and we don't play with that stuff here, this is about as conservative and biblically oriented churches you're going to find around here. While we don't play with that, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about how to love one another. Mean Christians stink. They frustrate me. They frustrate me the most when I'm one of them. I can't afford to be mean to you because it's an affront to what my heavenly father was doing in the person of Jesus, loving the whole world. And it's an affront to what Jesus was doing every time he interacted with women and children and undesirables. So, number three then. Often I believe our actions toward children particularly are a clear indication of our faith maturity. This is not my idea. Years ago, I read this from one of my favorite pastors in America today. His name is John Piper. I don't agree with everything Piper says, but I agree with a lot that he says. Here's what John Piper says. One thing to watch for when assessing a person's spiritual fitness for ministry is how he or she relates to children. Put a child in the room and watch. This is what Jesus did to make his point. Children are the litmus paper to expose the presence of pride. I read that years ago and I thought, if I ever have a chance to lead a church, children's ministry and family engagement will be the top priority. They'll get their stuff before adults get theirs. And a few years after thinking that, we had an opportunity to go into a building for a while and the building was a wreck. And so we were without a home and we didn't have much choice. So we said, we'll take it. And then this church gave about $70,000 over two weeks to rehab that building. And we rehabbed every single space except for the auditorium. And there were a few people, there's coffee and there's carpet and those seats. And I'm like, love you, love you. You're awesome, love you. But we spent that money on carpet and bathrooms and kids' space. And man, God blessed it. You may not know, but this week we literally started tearing down walls in our kids' space because you're generous. We're going to expand bathrooms and preschool space and elementary space. And we get to do that because to some degree that value is still alive here. As long as I'm here, I'm going to try to protect that to the best of my ability. And I hope all of you adults have a great time with us here in this room. We don't, we're not slack about it. But it is not the heartbeat behind what we do. We're here for families. We're going to help moms and dads have good marriage and invest in kids and teach them that Jesus loves them. This I know, for the Bible tells me so, and all that goes with that. 
how a person interacts with children, how they value them and esteem them and invest in them. It matters. And it causes me to ask the question that I titled this, this message. What's it worth? What's it worth to show value and dignity to me? What investment am I willing to make to show value and dignity to another person? Especially those that are easily forgotten. Number four, this one, these next two statements rattle me and keep me awake at night. The implications are huge. Number four, we may be criticized for what we believe. Just this week, somebody said to me, Ben, I'm having a hard time reading the Bible. I don't believe it all. I get that. I, I, I have lots of room for that. I love those conversations. Like, I love it when somebody's just like that raw about it. And the truth is, there are things that are complicated and complex. And when we describe what we believe to people, people are like, okay, all right, um, all right. Uh, <laughs> you ever had that kind of happen to you? Right, you're talking about stuff? I believe there was a man who hung on a cross, was resurrected. He's still alive today, and he sits on a throne. One day I'm going to join him. Yeah, that's, can we just, like, pass the meds, you know? Pass the meds. And we can be criticized for a lot that we believe. But in the next one, we should be famous for how we treat people, especially those in jeopardy. We should be known for this. The Bible makes it clear that the basic tenets of the faith are not palpable to people who the Spirit of God is not working in. In other words, of course our beliefs are not believable until the Spirit of God makes them believable. Of course they're not. It doesn't mean that they're completely irrational. But the fundamental belief, the Bible says, of its own teachings, it's a stumbling block. It's a tripping hazard, our doctrine. But, when we love people, it's an open door. It's an open door. You know which Christians you want to hang around with? The same ones I do. Not the mean ones, but the nice ones. We want to hang around them. We want, as we grow in our faith, to hang around the nice ones who get doctrine right and understand relational intelligence and they do conflict well. And, but at the core, we want them to be nice. And Jesus said, that's why he said, that all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Number six, it's countercultural to value others, and it's counterinstinctual. It's not going to come natural. This is the work of the Spirit. You don't just try harder. You ask God to mold and shape your heart by the power of the gospel. We're not just working this. We're being transformed by the Holy Spirit as we do it, as we give ourselves, as we humble ourselves, as we ask God to break our hearts. So number seven then, caring for the least of these is how Jesus says we step into greatness. Caring for the least of these is how Jesus says we step into greatness. A guy I've been reading a little bit here and there, he says it this way, number eight. We get rich. We get rich. Our lives are enriched. We gain when we give it away, when we use our power to give elevation to others, when we use our wealth to bless others, when we don't use it just for ourselves. That's why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, command those who are rich in this present age, in this present world, to not be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. 
I remember teaching this passage in early 2009. Some of you, when I said 2009, you remember 2008. It was ugly. People in our church lost 30% of their net value, their net worth. People lost land. Our church went through a financial struggle. And we remembered in that season that our wealth is not certain. It's foolish to put your hope there. But to put their hope in God, he says, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And then Paul says to this young pastor, Timothy, command. Now, nobody wants their pastor to command anything. But Paul told Timothy, command. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. We talked about that passage in that season as a church and people stepped up and people helped one another and we saw God work through the very principles here. That's the very motivation behind why we are investing in the orphan and in the less fortunate. Because God's given us the ability to do so. We We have resources, we have time, we have energy, we have money, we have thought. Some of us are very good thinkers through very complex challenges. And we try to leverage that for the good of others. So number nine then, our heart and hands Christmas offering is one practical way we try to be rich. It's one way that we say that we don't forget the children. When we look across the globe right now and we see all manner of challenges, even though some things are changing, We know that it wasn't that long ago in India, it wasn't unusual for women widows to throw themselves on the funeral pyres of their husband because after their husband died, they had no reason to live. All 40 girls at our orphanage in India were disposed of, not wanted. You know that you can go to various places around the world and and, and particularly where fundamentalist Islam is practiced the deplorable conditions of women, if you were to study it in depth, you would have a clear understanding of almost exactly what was going on in Jesus' day. And we say it shouldn't be that way. Right now we're looking at Cuba, where God has opened the doors for opportunity for the gospel to flow like it hasn't flown and, and to move like it hasn't moved since before 1960. And as one pastor of the church we're gonna help, said to me, yeah, with opportunity is coming challenges. Prices are rising as tourism's going up and people can't afford to eat. The price of bread in Havana went from under a quarter a loaf to four American dollars a loaf. It's okay, but what's the church gonna do when this door of opportunity is open? Visit a third world country today where where the community doesn't value Christianity and its teaching and look at the condition of women and children. That's why we're going into Cuba. It's effectively a third world country. In fact, in May, our plan is to take 12 to 15 Four Corners people there and you'll be given an opportunity to do that. I'm aware of the challenges. I'm aware how powerful our love and generosity speaks. So number 10, when I think about our opportunity as a church approaching this holiday season, when we think about the gift of Jesus to the world, here's what I'm aware of, that this opportunity puts the fun in funding for me. Yeah, I'll write a big check. I'll encourage my kids to. And it's the only time of the year I get up without shame and ask you to give. 
because it's not for us mostly. We're doing it to invest in others. It's a really, really big deal. So the walkaways for you today, if Jesus said the way you become great is you use what you have for the benefit of others, that you honor your heavenly father, your spiritual maturity is on display that the love that removes all confusion about what we're about to people who don't have the mind of God, when we serve others, when we take up for the women and for the children in the world, when we do those things and we elevate them to the position of a person made in the image of God, and when we say to them, everybody else may have forgotten you, but we haven't forgotten you, when we do that, we make a tangible difference. So this year, we're going to partner with an agency right on the other side of 129. It starts right here, and it ends in downtown Hamilton. And we're creating an outreach center there in partnership. Where last year, if you look at your program right here in the middle, last year, 45,000 hot meals were served right here. Some of you know if you've driven through Hamilton, there is some hope there. There's some Real movement there. and Prices are cheap. They're not going to be cheap forever. I predict it's going to be the new over the Rhine in the next five or ten years. So buy it up if you can, I guess, and gentrify it and make it all awesome and drive up those rents. Whatever. I don't, I don't. But in the meantime, in the meantime, let's serve them. They're our neighbors. And we don't hit people up all year long. But a couple times a year we say, hey, look, we're going to get behind the heart of Jesus. And you can do that through giving. But do not make this a money talk. Don't do that. You need to wrestle with how you're to use your authority, your power, your influence, and your resources to get behind the heart of Jesus for people that this world doesn't treat with dignity and value. The orphan, the fatherless, the discarded, the poor, those without status, those who've completely screwed up and they're sometimes responsible as much as any structure for their own choices. And this is a call for us as we go into the holiday season where I'm going to, we've already started Christmas shopping and I'm gonna buy gifts for my kids who don't need anything and I'm gonna do it with a smile. I'm glad to do it, I don't feel guilty about it. But I'm not only gonna do that. I'm going to bless others through what God had blessed me with and I would like you to do the same. Just to show you integrity of heart here to the best I can. If you can't do that here, fine. You don't like what I said? You can't? Awesome. Do not forget what I've said to you. Go find a place to do it. Put your love on display. Let's grab out our connect cards and take a couple steps together as a church. <clears throat> I've been talking about the heart of Jesus, and it could be that this is all kind of academic for you. You don't actually have a relationship with him. That's the good news about Jesus. He didn't just say, I'm going to help lift you. He said, I'm going to bring you into my life. I'm going to have an open door set before you. If you'll walk through it, I'll be with you. I will never abandon you. The Bible describes that process in a lot of ways. Uh, being born again is one phrase. Discovering new life. Coming to faith and repentance. A lot of ways to describe it. We say it this way. I want to challenge you today to make Jesus your Savior and Lord, the one who forgives your sins and leads your life. And if you want to do that by putting your trust in the work that Jesus has done on the cross and in the resurrection and no work that you can do on your own, we'd ask you to take your pen and check the box. And in a moment when the offering buckets come by, just put it in there. 
We'll follow up with you. You're not joining our church. I'm not going to send you an email asking for money. Just we want you to have a relationship with Jesus. And I want you to understand what that means. And so we'll communicate with you about it. Or next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. So like December 4th, we have a baptism. Right now there are nine adults signed up to be baptized. If you're wondering if God's at work here, like for whatever reason you're disconnected or whatever, you call this church home and I want you to be here December 4th. Each story is a changed life that God has used this church and your investment and our team together to do it. But if you need to be baptized, go ahead and check the box. I think you'll really, really enjoy the conversation of clarity about what baptism is and how powerful it can be in your life and others. Uh, Next step C says, hey, Ben, count me in. I don't know what yet, but I'll give to the Hearts and Hands Christmas gift. Just send me the link and I'll send you a link to do that. And then this week or early next, everybody who calls this church home is gonna get a letter from me and invite you to think more deeply about it. I'll give you a lot more detail about each of the things. Can't really squeeze it in in a half a page there. You'll know all the places where the money's going and we're very transparent with that stuff around here. And I'll give you an update on how your money last year made a difference. And you're gonna love it. You're gonna be a part of something powerful. Just check the box. Now, before we get to the next one, whenever I give a talk like this, there's a handful of you whose hearts are deeply stirred. And you wanna go above and beyond. This is not everybody. It's like less than 1%. Now, normally I don't do this publicly. But next step D kind of speaks to that people. It says this, hey, Ben, I'll bring a leading and sacrificial gift early and, and great. Sacrificial is whatever sacrificial to you. And I'd like you to invite me to have a conversation. Here's what I want to ask you. Why would you do that? I remember the time that we were getting ready to get into a building and the guy handed me a check and it had lots of zeros on it and a number in front of it. And I was overwhelmed. I'd never seen the word thousand on a check before. And um, I remember like almost in tears going, this is going to help. And then I said to him, why would you do this? Like, I just don't understand. And for the next 15 minutes, he explained why he thought it was worth investing in kingdom work. And that's what I'd like to ask you. If your heart is stirred and you want to like go above and beyond, I don't want to just receive your money. I want to understand your heart on that. And I want to ask God, what would he say to me as you explain your heart, why this is important to you? So again, that's not everybody, but if that's you, would you check it? Because otherwise I wouldn't know. And the next step, E, our kids ministry is launching this week, a mitten and gloves thing where they're going to collect mittens and gloves and give them to a place to give away. And so if you want to do that, starting next Sunday, there'll be a collection box in the lobby. All you got to do is bring them, drop it in there over the next few weeks. If you have a kid and you're picking them up today, you'll see that. You'll get that information. And we're just going to partner with them as they try to live out the very things we're talking about here. Right, so those are your next steps. Would you just hold on to those? And if you call our church home, would you go ahead and begin to give your gifts, your tithe and your offering ready to give? As you're doing that, I, I do want to say thank you. I'm, this week as we tore down some walls in our student area or in our kids area and got ready for the investment, I was reminded how much I love the heart of this church. And so last year we raised a lot of money at Christmas and We've been kind of holding off, making some investments. We started working on a foundation for a boys' orphanage in Kerala, India with that money. We've begun construction on our own kids' space over here. And I thought about all the people. I thought about the grandma who bought one less gift so she could give to the offering to make a difference in people's lives. I thought about my own kids 
who pulled money from their, you know, the, the stuff they had earned and they, they wrote checks and how that blessed me. And, and I thought about a couple of people who I know don't have a lot, but you couldn't tell it by the generosity with what they gave. And I thought, we are a rich church. And I didn't mean that we're rich money-wise. I mean, we got behind the heart of God and what a blessing it is. And your heart is gonna be encouraged over the next few weeks as you see exactly what God did with that money, money that most of us never even missed. And the same thing's gonna happen now. So I'm gonna lead us in prayer about our next steps in our giving. And then we're gonna give to God out of the abundance with which he's blessed us. Would you bow with me right now? Father, I wanna thank you for the work of Jesus. I wanna thank you, God, that you looked at me a little five-year-old boy in the inner city streets of Chicago, and you loved me. You knew my name. You called me out. I wanna thank you, Lord, that you blessed me, and I, I get to be a part of what you're doing in this world, but not just me, Lord. Men and women all over this room have been changed by your love and your grace. Right now, I lift up those people who have not yet given their lives to you, but they're doing it right now. They're saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. But would you save me through the work you did on your cross and in your resurrection? Would you wash me clean? Would you become the leader of my life? Father, I pray for each next step being made, those that I offered and those that you brought to mind. And Father, would you bless our hearts and hands Christmas offering? And would you cause the money we give even today to go far and wide? And would you make us, Lord, a rich church, rich in good deeds, rich in generosity? I pray it all in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son, amen. Would you remain seated as the offering buckets come around?